Welcome to Gathering Gold. This is Cheryl Paul. And I'm Victoria Russell. This is our one year anniversary episode. Can you believe it, Cheryl? Woohoo! <laughs> Almost oh. one year to the day we started mm-hmm. the podcast. And if you listened to our last episode, we thought that it would be fun for this special episode to do an Ask Us Anything format. So we put out a call to our Gathering Gold listeners to email us or message us through the Patreon community and ask us anything they wanted to. And there were so many fantastic questions. Mm -hmm. I truly couldn't I mean, I could very much believe it because all of my interactions with people from this community are just full of thoughtfulness and kindness and insight. Mm. So Mm. it wasn't surprising at all, but I was just thrilled to receive them. I kept texting you, Cheryl, like, oh my gosh, look at this question. Look at this question. So many of them were questions that I have myself or I wrestle with or I used to Mm -hmm. wrestle with in a bigger way. And so that was also just very, very affirming to me. And I'm really excited to get to talk with you, Cheryl, about some of these questions in our episode today. And unfortunately, we can't get to all of them because there were too many, but we are going to address some more of them in our future Patreon bonus episodes. So if you currently are a patron, you will get a monthly bonus episode and we'll be addressing some of these questions in upcoming episodes. And if you are not currently a patron, but you'd like to find out more about becoming one, you can go to patreon.com slash gathering gold. It's been so exciting to see the names coming in for our patrons, and we're so grateful to all of you for your support and so excited to be connecting more deeply with you and to be receiving your questions more regularly and connecting in a in a deeper way than we can do in this format where it's just Victoria and I talking with each other, that we are so excited to be bringing you into the conversation and deepening our pathways of connection with you. So should we get to our first question, Cheryl? Yes. Okay. So this first question comes from Cami, I think. I'm pronouncing that correctly. Mm Mm-hmm. So this is the question. My question for you is about grief. I'm not sure if this happens to everyone or if it is just me, but whether it is grief from a breakup from losing a friend that we don't talk with anymore, or a loved one who died and we know we will never see again. I struggle sometimes with random flashbacks of really simple moments or conversations we had. I can be concentrated reading or working or doing something else, and the memories will just pop into my head like an intrusive thought. It is painful to have these memories because they hurt, as opposed to just remembering the person with nostalgia and happiness. Is this normal during grief? Do you have any recommendations as to how to deal with them so they can slowly go away? And if they do pop up eventually, hopefully it won't hurt as much? Mm. I love questions about grief. Not that I love that we have to grieve, but it speaks to the heart of being human and the heart of how deeply we love and the heart of the highly sensitive person. So what first 
stands out to me is the question of, I'm not sure if this happens to everyone, and embedded in that question is, is this normal? Am I normal? So I want to address that first and say, yes, this is the grieving process. This is how it shows up for everybody. And I wouldn't call those flashback memories intrusive thoughts. They are memories. And they are coming from, they are bubbling up from your soul, from that unconscious layer, the body layer that carries our memories. And they are indicative of how much it hurts to love and to lose. So the question of how do you deal with them so that they go away speaks to our very natural instinctive tendency to want to push away grief and push away pain in all forms. And Pema Chodron comes to mind in the practice of Tonglen, the practice of reversing that instinctual habit that wants to push away and instead breathes into those memories. And even um, moving toward them as sacred because they are carrying also the love that you shared with that person. So to watch how much we want to push away what hurts, it is, again, the most natural thing in the world. But you can hear embedded in the question, how do I, basically the question is, how do I make it go away? How do I stop this so it won't hurt so much? And anytime we approach our emotional lives with the intention of trying to make it go away, it actually comes back more strongly. It comes back double or triple. Um, And when we surrender to it, which is not easy to do at all, it's easy to say, difficult to do, maybe the most difficult thing in the world is to move toward our pain, to even embrace it with reverence, to honor the memories as they bubble up, to breathe into that ache in the heart. And yes, this happens, I would say it happens to everybody who has awareness of their inner world. I just had a dream last night about a friend. There was, it was a friend breakup happened many, many years ago, decades ago. And it's a friend breakup that I never quite understood. And it still pains me when I think about her. I don't know, did I do something? I don't know. I don't quite understand what happened there. It was in my early 20s um, to mid-20s, somewhere in that range. So 25 years ago. And I dreamed about her last, just last night. And so she's been with me today. And there is pain, of course, but there's also some sense of tenderness, you know, some sense of tenderness for um, our humanity, for how painful it is to love and lose. I loved her so much, and I still do carry that place of love in my heart, even though we haven't spoken in 25 years. So... It's like when we can move toward it, even incrementally, even for five more seconds, we widen our hearts. Our hearts become a little bit more expansive. We widen our tolerance for pain. And by doing so, we widen our tolerance 
our not our tolerance. Well, sometimes our tolerance for joy, because joy can be hard to tolerate sometimes too, our capacity for joy. That's really beautiful and really helpful to hear you share about having that dream about your friend last night, because mm. I definitely experienced this with thinking about friendships that I had that ended, which I think can be a particularly confusing experience because it's like, yes. should I try to rekindle that friendship or mm-hmm. should I try to reconnect? Do I just leave it? Why did it happen? I don't even really remember. Was it me? Yes. Um, so sometimes those experiences can be really confusing. Mm-hmm. And I think one layer for me. So this is me adding on to the question. <laughs> And maybe this is not something that the original question asker grapples with, but Hmm. something that I notice and that I wonder if others experience as well is that I very quickly go from that moment of grief to blaming myself Mm. or feeling guilty. Mm. What did I do wrong? Or I should have done X, Y, or Z. I shouldn't have done that thing. And it it very quickly goes into this blame and guilt space. I'm so glad you're bringing that in, Victoria, because if I had to intuit into the question, I would imagine that that layer is in there because I don't know that pure, raw grief is, is so painful. It is. It is painful and it is hard to make room for it. But it's exactly what you're saying. Sometimes it's it's so painful that then we go up into the shame and blame stories to protect against the grief. So I'm kind of contradicting myself. It's like, it is that painful. And it's also when we move toward it, it's such a pure experience that it does pass through. And we learn that it's not something that we have to push away. But the protectors come in. They bring us up. And if you could see my hands right now, they bring us from the heart up into the head of the blame, shame stories, the guilt, did I do something wrong, right? Because that's all headspace. And so I think that there's so much in the question. And I think each example that she gave, whether it's grief from a breakup, okay, that's one kind of pain. Losing a friend, we don't talk anymore. That's a different kind of pain, Mm -hmm. similar to breakup but different, or a loved one who has died, mm. that's a whole different grief, yep. Yep. right? That usually doesn't come with the, the blame and guilt stories, right? It might, but not in the same kind of way. So if we had the person on the call with us, we would be able to explore each of those. But I think for everybody listening, Um, the common place is to watch for where your mind goes to try to protect you from the raw pain. And if at all possible to bring in that mindset of curiosity so that if a guilt and blame story shows up, you can be curious, well, was there something I did from a place of curiosity, but not from a place of self-judgment and blame and guilt, right? Right. Because I am genuinely curious about 
this friendship, I have a suspicion that there were things that I did in my 20s, late teens and 20s that hurt her that she never told me about. And so I couldn't make a repair because I didn't know. But as I review, I think there's a strong possibility that I that I did hurt her. I would love to know that now. Um, but I don't go to like, oh, I was a horrible person. I mean, I was 19 or I was 22 and, you know, I mean, I could hurt somebody today and I'm 50. We do, we do hurt people. It's such a good point that you made about how each type of grief that Cami named is so there's a similar thread, but they're very different experiences. Mm. There's an overwhelming quality to a breakup, and there's a really overwhelming quality to the death of a loved one that yes. is so visceral and so excruciating. Um, and it can, I mean, not to min- not to minimize how painful it can be to lose a friend, um, but. Mm-hmm. To know that your friend is doing well, you know, like it's a very different experience if you know, okay, we lost touch, but my friend is doing really well and they're happy and I'm happy for them. And that's a different experience. And something about the naming of the intrusive quality of it, like the the fact that they keep popping up Mm. and it almost feels like when I think intrusive thought, I think unwanted kind of almost relentless, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if there's anything to that piece of it. And I know we we have to move on to other questions, but um I'm I'm <laughs> curious if there's anything to the piece of it about the fact that it feels intrusive and it feels persistent. Like it happens a lot. And I'm just curious if there's any yes. any other piece around that. Yes. So how she phrases it I think is important. I can be concentrated reading or working or doing something else, and the memories will just pop into my mind. Like an intrusive thought, she asks it as a question. And I would be curious to find out more about that if she were here with us. Um, Does it feel intrusive because it's persistent and it's relentless, or does it feel, are you calling it intrusive because it's uncomfortable to feel pain? It's, un- it's, it's painful to have these memories, she writes, because they hurt as opposed to just remembering the person with nostalgia and happiness. So I think there's a cognitive distortion there. What I'm hearing is this expectation that we're supposed to only remember loss and people who are not in contact with mm. anymore with happiness mm. and nostalgia. And that's what I think is very important to lift up. Like, it's not supposed to hurt. I should just be remembering this person with love and butterflies and, oh, what a wonderful person that was. And so I hear a should in there. Right, And that might be the intrusive piece is not, or what she's calling intrusive, is not allowing the pain. Mm. to be attached mm. to the memory. Yeah, I just had something, I would say similar to this, where 
my boyfriend Martin and I and our friend Jess, we all traveled out to Arizona for our friend's wedding, which is thousands of miles away. And my friend moved out to Arizona last summer. So it's been a little less than a year and lives now in this cabin on this beautiful piece of land with her new husband and their dogs. And she's like living her dream, you know, and Mm -hmm. we traveled all the way out there and they got married in their backyard. And we spent the day there. And as we were driving away, I said to Martin and Jess, I was like, I'm feeling sadness right now. Mm-hmm. And I almost felt bad because it's like, I'm so happy for my friend that she is with this partner and living in this beautiful place. And I just felt this general sadness that comes with change and, yes. you know, a friend moving away, leaving, starting a life somewhere else and and just the change of kind of a new era of life where more and more friends are kind of going through these big transitions and i felt like mm. oh i should only feel happy on this wedding day but i actually decided to say it out loud to the people i was with and and they were really receptive and like oh yeah i get that and J- and Jess was like also it's dusk and i always feel a little mm-hmm. sad at dusk you know <laughs> yes. and we're leaving the party and the party's over you yes. know all of these things and it's a wedding and yeah. that comes with grief and loss and change yeah just one more piece i want to say about this question and i know we have to move on <laughs> we we could spend 2 hours on yeah. every single question um just to highlight again the difference between an intrusive thought and grief. And I think when it feels intrusive, it's more likely that it's connected to that piece that you raised, Victoria, about going into a story and going into the blame. What did I do wrong? Wrong. There's something wrong with me. I'm horrible in friendship. I think particularly around friendship is, mm-hmm. is what I want to lift up because – Friendship, as we know, because we tried to do the episode on it, is so vast, so under-discussed, and it got tucked into this question, but I have a feeling that there's more to this for Cammie around the friendship piece Um, because I know how much charge friendship holds for people and how much friendship breakups can send people into that overdrive of intrusive thoughts and stories around worthiness, right, and can so easily tip into a shame place, then we are in the realm of an intrusive thought, right? And that's different from the grief. Mm. These questions okay. are too good. I know. They're too good. So should we move Truly, on? <laughs> yes. We, ha- we just have to. We have to. Okay, this is from Mirella. I hope I'm saying that correctly. I would love to hear your thoughts on anxiety about becoming a parent. It feels similar to relationship anxiety with the thoughts about whether or not it is the right decision, in quotes, for me and worries about losing myself. I'm also concerned about the impact it could have on my marriage, which is amazing now that I work through my relationship anxiety. As someone with a history of anxiety and depression who has been going well the last few years, I am terrified of postnatal depression and regretting my decision and my mental health spiraling. 
At the same time, I can see how it could be a nice, although challenging experience, and my husband wants a child. We've talked about one being a good number for us, which made me feel better as one sounds less overwhelming to me. I will just say that I relate to this question very deeply, and I am so curious to hear your response, Cheryl, because I do. I feel this deep ambivalence and Mm -hmm. a lot of fear around it. Yes. So it's such a common question, which is why we chose it among all of the wonderful questions. Um, It just came up today on my group call for my nine-month course, actually, and it comes up a lot in my courses. And- yeah, we could spend, again, an hour unpacking all of the different pieces. What I want to say as the overarching response is that ambivalence and doubt are always normal, especially around huge decisions. So all of your fears, um, am I going to lose myself? Is it the right decision? Um, will I fall into postnatal depression? Will I regret? These fears come up all the time for people, especially people who are prone to anxiety, um, who have worked through a lot of anxiety and are in a pretty good place, and they're worried about tumbling back into the depression and the anxiety again. So the first part is to make infinite room for the fears, for the doubt, for the ambivalence. It's going to be there And it might be there even if you choose to move forward and have a child. It might be there throughout the pregnancy. It might be there after you give birth. And so we have this idea, again, and I think part of it is the black and white thinking of the anxious mind of perfect clarity. I have my answer. Yes, I definitely 100% want to have a child. And while some people do have that clear knowing, a lot of people don't. And there's enough of a knowing, enough of a sense of wanting to move in that direction, an 80% that they decide to move forward. As far as the piece around being afraid of what happens post-baby, again, extremely common. And there's so much great information about postnatal depression now, which is fantastic. What I tend to see in people who are familiar with my work and have done deep work around one aspect of anxiety, most commonly relationship anxiety, is that you now have the tools. You have the template to work through the anxiety as it arises. You will expect there to be grieving. You're not going into it thinking this is going to be the most blissful time of my life, I hope, because so much of my work is about shattering unrealistic expectations and the messages that are downloaded around things like relationships, wedding, pregnancy, birth, motherhood, parenthood. And so um, it's it's the same template because it's the template of transitions. You understand that there will be a death of identity of a being a non-mother, right? And you will make room for that because it lives inside of you now as a roadmap. So for the people who 
have done significant layers of inner work, specifically around anxiety and transitions, I don't see postnatal depression. It's And also what we call depression. So <laughs> the culture will say, if you're crying a lot after you have a baby, it means you are experiencing postnatal depression and there's something wrong with you. So there is true postpartum depression, for sure. I am not minimizing or invalidating or diminishing that. And there is also normal grieving that happens after you have a child and become a parent that is not a diagnosable condition. It's healthy, normal grieving during a huge, life-altering transition. So when you put all of those pieces together, it can loosen and soften some of the anxiety um, around the decision itself. And then there's what it comes down to really, as far as do I have a child or not have a child, it comes down to self-trust. It comes down to knowing yourself well enough to be able to tune into those deeper layers of a prompting, of a leaning, following your own timetable, right? Um, Listening to those deeper places inside of you. I had the most phenomenal session with somebody a few weeks ago. And I, I won't share details because it's confidential in our sessions, but it was this exact question And when we peeled back some layers and I helped her tap into the imagery, what was already emerging in her unconscious, it was like light bulbs going off of clarity, of somatic soul clarity. And not 100%, but oh, That's what's living inside of me. Oh, man, that sounds really fascinating. I'm so curious about the imagery, but obviously I understand keeping it (laughs) confidential. It's so interesting because I've heard I've heard some people even talk about it as like a 51% yes. Like it could it was like a hair, yes. you know, <laughs> a hair towards one one way. Um mm. and I something that's fascinating to me with both relationship anxiety and questions about commitment and anxiety around should I become a parent is that I think there's this element of just truly realizing deep in your bones for maybe the first time that these are choices. And I know that sounds kind of funny, but I think we often grow up thinking, well, I'll just feel, I'll just feel my way through all of it and I'll know because I'll feel 100% infatuated with my partner. Mm-hmm. Or I will feel 100% certain. Or it's just a given. Like you just grow up like, well, that this is what you do. Mm-hmm. You know this timeline and you do this. And then when you become an adult and you kind of realize, oh, it's all choices. And there's no, there's no right choice. Yes. I think that can be a really startling and unsettling experience for some Mm. people, obviously not for everyone, but for some people, there's like this sudden realization of, or this 
kind of startling realization of, oh, this is a choice that I make. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or it's yes. a series of choices that I make. Yes. And what if if you I think there are some people who are very decisive and and still these things hit them in a new way. But especially if you have struggled with, like you said, kind of self-trust and making mm. decisions. And then you're like, wait, I have to make these huge decisions and it's not just completely obvious to me. It's not just this blissful feeling, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yes. It highlights that um, skill, that muscle of being your own inner parent Mm -hmm. that nobody can really make that decision for you. And we live in a time, which is wonderful, but also challenging of so much choice, mm-hmm. right? That women now have the choice where for most of history, women didn't. It was just what you did, right? And so I think what you're saying is so important, Victoria, because the question itself does bring to the surface right? this piece around, I am responsible for my own life and I get to make my own choices, but that's also a responsibility. And if it's not coming from this profound knowing, right, I'm 100% certain. And some people are, like you said, some people, I, I was, right? I knew I wanted to have children. There was never a doubt for me. I've had plenty of doubts in other areas of my life, but that wasn't one of them. Um, but for the vast majority of people who find their way to me, it's not like that. There is tons of doubt at every significant threshold in life. And I think what you're saying about just kind of making room for that and not seeing that as an indication that something's wrong with you or that you're bound to make some terrible mistake. Yes, exactly. So we have another question from Tali who asks, how do you approach explaining high sensitivity to others? I really like this question because something I've been thinking about a lot recently is how much of my life I spent trying to hide or lie about (laughs) like who I am and what I'm experiencing because I just felt like there was something wrong with me. Yeah. So the idea of actually being open and sharing my experience of life, like the way that it that it actually happens for me and explaining to someone this is kind of my temperament and this is what it's like and this is maybe why is kind of radical to me. You know, Mm. it's something more in the last few years that with friends, I'll share more about anxiety, about high sensitivity. And one explanation that I really love comes from Elaine Aaron's book, The Highly Sensitive Mm. Person. 
Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty sure this is this is an example I've used. I haven't read the book since like 2013 when you gave it to me, Cheryl. Mm-hmm. But I believe that the one example that she gave was, say you have two children on their first day of kindergarten, their first day going to school. And the one one child just runs straight into the building. He's super excited. And the other child notices on his way in that the teacher looks stressed and he starts to feel anxious. So the first child just didn't notice that the teacher looked stressed. And so the first child is just, you know, carefree. (laughs) The -hmm. second child noticed. And I Mm. thought, I think that this is such a good example of what high sensitivity can look like is noticing things and picking up on things, especially from other people that maybe others aren't noticing or picking up on. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always mean we come to the correct an- analysis of why. So for example, I might see that the teacher looks stressed and think it's because I did something wrong. So mm. that's not the correct <laughs> um, Interpretation. conclusion to draw. Mm-hmm. Right. But but just note picking up on people's cues um, and then also just kind of talking about how we respond to stimulation, to, you know, sound, yes. lights, crowds, and that we might actually feel it in a more heightened way. Yes. Those are examples that I have found really helpful when I start to talk to friends about, hey, you know, I'm actually there there's there's some theories out there that high sensitivity might even be a genetic mm-hmm. trait and that it's like 15 to 20% of the population. And yes. this is how it looks for me. And here's an example, or here's why in this situation, I'm reacting this way. Here's what's happening for me right now. And usually my friends are like, oh, that's really interesting. You know? Mm-hmm. I love what you're saying, Victoria, because it speaks to, and I think embedded in the question is also this shame piece mm-hmm. that even in attempting to explain it, it is um, healing. There can be a healing element in that you are claiming this is who I am. And I am advocating on my own behalf. Like I would advocate for my children in a situation that was too much for them, which I have done a hundred times, right, over the lifetime of raising my kids. To do that on your own behalf is such a loving action. It's that inner parent coming in to say, this is who I am and I'm going to try to explain it to you so that you can understand who I am. And so there's that, there's that pre-first step, even before you say anything, in not hiding and not trying to override and hide behind that shame wall of pretending that this is not who you are. And then I think coming from the scientific explanation is really important to help people understand that it is a temperamental trait. It does show up across species, not just humans, right? From humans to dogs to cats to elephants to grasshoppers, that it is across species a temperamental trait with 
some challenges and with a lot of gifts. But I think the temperamental trait piece, the genetic piece is important in explaining it to others because I think a lot of people think that high sensitivity is something that we choose or we're just sort of giving into weakness, but you can't really change it any more than you can change the color of your eyes. You were born with high sensitivity. And most people end up experiencing it as a burden until they claim it, until they read books like The Highly Sensitive Person, until they start to immerse themselves in the literature, which is vast now, thanks to Elaine Aaron. And now people like her, her who are advocating and putting out into the world the tremendous gifts of being a highly sensitive person. So yes, to talk about it as a temperamental trait, to talk about it in very concrete terms, this is where I get overwhelmed. My sensory system, right? The word senses is in the word. It's sensitivity and it's sensory. My senses are heightened. Sounds sound louder. Smells sound, smell smellier, you know, smell, (laughs) Um, right? And that can be very overwhelming. And sitting and listening to a concert can be an ecstatic experience. And looking at a piece of art can be an ecstatic experience because of the heightened sensory awareness. Yeah, and I I think there's a piece to it around it's the ownership and Mm. taking responsibility for it that is important, not just in how we talk about it with other people, but in how we live it with other people. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's like important that I'm aware of taking care of myself as best I can so that I'm not I'm not putting things on other on other people. Mhm. If that makes sense? Yes. And then it can come from a place of much more mutuality. And I've had friends who probably are not highly sensitive. Like one of the 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 best friendship moments I've had is getting really beautiful card from a friend of mine when I was going through a really difficult breakup. And I would say I would say deep down she actually is a sensitive person deep down, but like mm-hmm. she's not a highly sensitive person in those like classic yes. senses, you know? And she just wrote about like what it meant to her to have essentially what she was saying was like a sensitive friend, you know, mm-hmm. and like what it brought to her life. And I've had mm-hmm. friends share that with me too. And I think it's a really beautiful exchange. Mm-hmm. And the most helpful thing is the more that we take care of ourselves and take responsibility for it and responsibility for taking care of ourselves, the more our friends can enjoy and we can enjoy um, what Cheryl was talking about, like the really beautiful aspects of it mm-hmm. and and not, not experience it as much as a burden. Yes. And I think there's one more piece about the question that I think is important to say, which is it depends on who you're explaining it to Mm -hmm. and why. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so if it's a safe person, if it's a dear friend or a partner who genuinely wants to understand, then there's so much that you can share. And there's books that you can give them. And there's articles that you can send. But if it's someone who is coming from more of a place of shaming you, um, maybe a relative who doesn't understand and you know that no matter how you explain it, they're still going to be sitting in judgment, right? Then there's really no point in going down that road. And so it's assessing who is asking and why so that you take good care of yourself in those conversations. Yeah. And if it isn't someone asking, but you find yourself just wanting to explain, is it from a place of, Mm -hmm. I really want to share this with someone that I think is receptive and we have this good foundation of a relationship? Or are you trying to make, or are you offering an explanation that you don't need to give? Yes. Because one of the most freeing, powerful things I I think I did actually learn in my 20s, I still have to work on it, but it really like got into my bones was there are so few times when you actually owe someone an explanation. Mm. (laughs) There are many good reasons and many times when less is more. Amen. And so in the question itself, right? How do you approach explaining high sensitivity? Are you trying to explain yourself because you feel like you have to explain yourself? Mm -hmm. Or are you actually sharing of yourself because someone is genuinely curious? Mm -hmm. And it's what you're saying, Victoria. You don't have to explain yourself. You don't have to try to explain high sensitivity to somebody who you know does not get it, is not interested in trying to get it, That is an old place. That's a child place of, can you please get me? Mm -hmm. If only I explain it in just the right way, maybe they'll get me. And it likely tracks back to a young place of, can you see who I am? Please, can you get how I'm wired? And the loneliness of not being seen and honored growing up, not because of anybody else's fault, just because, I mean, for one thing, there wasn't even the language around high sensitivity until fairly recently, you know, and for a parent to fully honor a child's sensitivity, they need to honor at least to some degree their own sensitivity. And so to watch, right, to watch what, where it's coming from in you, the desire to explain. Yeah. That's really good. do this last question let's do the last fun (laughs) reminds me of our power of laughter episode let's switch gears and get into our our fun mode Mm -hmm. so tali asked and i think at least one other person asked because i mentioned this question 
in our last episode. I was like, if anyone w- wants to ask what she- what Cheryl's favorite Taylor Swift song is. <laughs> <laughs> so Tali shared that her favorite is a toss-up between Shake It Off and You Need to Calm Down. Very good dance songs. Mm-hmm. Um, great, like, waking up in the morning and I need to dance or I got to clean something um, mm. songs. <laughs> yeah. Cheryl, what is your favorite Taylor Swift song? Mm. And several people asked on Instagram, so <laughs> it was it became it became a, a popular question. Um, so the first thing I want to say is, whenever somebody asks me about a favorite question, whether it's like, "What's your favorite color?" or "What's your favorite dessert?" my mind kind of like fritz like short circuits. Right? I'm the same way, and I'm the one who set up this question. And then I was instantly like, I can't even answer this question. No. And I was I the one who framed favorites. it. So mm-hmm. I'm just, it's so ingrained that type It's of so question. ingrained. I know. And I think, <laughs> and I think it's, I think it's just important to name that piece because also as a highly sensitive person, um, we're kind of more wired to think more um, laterally instead of hierarchically, right? Um, And just to allow for the multiplicity. So that said, there are definitely a few songs that stand out for me. And my little preamble about Taylor Swift is that um, I had so many assumptions about her for years and years and years. And I never listened to one of her songs. I thought she was just this kind of teeny bopper, superficial girl who had nothing of value to say or to sing about. Um, And I'm still kind of stunned about how wrong I was, but that's what I absorbed of Taylor Swift. And that's the image I carried of her, my assumptions. And then it was during COVID and somehow we landed on, maybe it was like Apple Music just played it for us, um, Champagne Problems. And all of us, all four of us in my family just kind of like stopped in our tracks. And we played it again and again and again. And I was like, this is Taylor Swift? She's deep. (laughs) She's poetic. And like you and I have talked about, Victoria, she is a highly sensitive soul. (laughs) Right? No, we have no doubt. Um, And so – because that was the first song I fell in love with, it it definitely holds a special place in my heart. Um, the story of it, the lyrics, just the musicality of it, so good. Um, and then I I love that whole album, really. Um, but that song, Marjorie, or maybe that's on the Folklore album. Marjorie's so on Evermore. Mm-hmm. It's on Evermore. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we listened to Evermore on repeat for months. But Marjorie, I kind of skipped over it until you said, Victoria, it's about her grandmother. Mm -hmm. And then I listened to it immediately afterward and I just stood there and wept. I just wept. It's so beautiful. And, of course, reminded me of my relationship with my grandmother and what happens after death and 
the places that we hold and the places we miss speaks to the first question, really, of the call. And it also alerted me to like the Taylor Swift Easter eggs, like, oh, there's there's even more layers to her songs than are immediately apparent. Um, and then we kind of branched out from there and you need to calm down. It's fantastic. And it's so bold and brave. And, um, and we started to watch some of her music videos and I love that music video. And then we listened to the man and Asher, (laughs) my younger son was like, look at this music video. (laughs) (laughs) And is so, she's so creative, right? And she's, um, she's really quite bold in her creativity. And then that song, so I'm, I'm almost done. (laughs) (laughs) Um, the last great American dynasty. Uh I, I love, I love songs that tell a story. Um, and those lyrics are so creative and the way she, the way she, um, puts words together, the way she splits up her, her lines and then the way she embeds herself into that song. Ugh, I, that, I love that song. That one gives me chills. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I first became aware of Taylor Swift when I was a teenager and her first like big hit was our song. And at the time I fancied myself too cool, right? Mm -hmm. I I think this is so much, I mean, there's just a lot of like sexism around (laughs) the way Mm. that, you know, she's kind of portrayed and Mm. received often. Yes. as a teenager, I was like, I'm too cool. I did that with a lot of different popular artists, though. Like, I just fancied myself mm-hmm. too cool. And even though I I did like the song, our song, like, it was so <laughs> catchy, but I just pretended even to myself that I didn't like it. <laughs> and then it was my senior year, and I got dumped, and a good friend of mine made me a mixed CD. Mm. And one of the songs on it was Forever and Always by Taylor Swift. And Mm -hmm. I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't pretend anymore that Mm. I didn't like her music because Forever and Always is such a good song. And there is truly nothing like being a 17-year-old scorned young woman, you know, driving around in the dark in Middletown, New Jersey, in my sister's car that I was destined to total in a few months, um, listening to Forever and Always on blast while I'm feeling hurt and rejected. And that one really pulled me in. But I think Mm. there, there is something really interesting about watching her mature as a person and a songwriter and kind of moving out of the like you know, a lot of her early songs are very much like she has been wronged and um, and then kind of experiencing different sides and, and experiencing that storytelling that isn't necessarily as concretely autobiographical is really interesting. Mm. Um, but I love, okay, I can't, I can't really pick, <laughs> but I know I, w- I will say for 
the themes of your work, Cheryl, there's a song called New Year's Day that okay, I have to write it down. Oh my gosh. So I I tend because I sometimes I'm also afraid of my emotions and afraid of grief and afraid of being overwhelmed by grief. Mm-mm. I don't always go for the ballads because I'm like, this is going to make me feel things and then mm-hmm. I'm going to get stuck mm-hmm. in a swamp of sadness and I'm just going to skip. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, this song, New Year's Day, is one of her ballads. It's the last song on her album, Reputation. It sounds okay. totally different from all the other songs on that album. And basically the premise of the song is, saying to you know her partner i want your midnights but i'll be cleaning up bottles with you on new year's day Mm. so there's the juxtaposition of like the party last night but Mm. it's about the next morning and you're the one that i want to clean up the bottles with Mm. and um it's such a beautiful portrait of real love like Mm. there's infatuation Mm -hmm. and sparkles and taylor swift songs (laughs) but at the end of the day it's you know, in her newer work, hearing her talk about things like cleaning up bottles with you or um, in another song, like, you know, we painted your brother's room or, you know, I'll be there when you're the toast of the town or when you're crawling home. Um, mm. Just these images of real love being so much more than just the sweeping infatuation butterflies that we hear yes. about so much in love songs. So the the simplicity of the image of cleaning up bottles on New Year's Day, hmm. I think is such a beautiful portrait of love. And so mm. I'm going to call forward that song. <laughs> I love it. And such a good place too. And I yeah. think to bring it back to that relationship anxiety portal, which is you know such an inroad for a lot of people finding their way here. Yeah. Well, thank you, Cheryl. This was really fun. Um, yeah, a different a different way for us to explore um, topics other than us just coming up with them. But I love I love fielding. I love hearing the questions, and I love going deeper into these places with you, Victoria, and also with all of you listening. Yes. Thank you, everyone, for sending in questions. They're going to be informing, like I said, our future Patreon bonus episodes, but also I'm sure they will be informing all of our Gathering Gold episodes as we hold you know, what's important to you and what you've shared with us. And I'm sorry that we couldn't respond to every question in this episode. I truly wish we could. And it's mm-hmm. part of my own anxiety of like responsibility and wanting to take care of people. And <laughs> <laughs> like the idea of of not answering each question is very, is a difficult pill for me to swallow. But <sighs> I just want to say thank you so much. And um, yeah, we we're just so grateful for everything you shared. Yes. Cheryl, if people want to find more about you and your work online, where should they go? My website is conscious-transitions.com and Instagram is at wisdom of anxiety. And we are on our Patreon page for patrons submitting questions and comments. It's been really fun to connect with you there. That is patreon.com slash gathering gold. And you can find me over at my other podcast, Perennials, or on Instagram at Perennials Podcast. And if you are enjoying Gathering Gold, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, rate it, leave a review, and share it with a friend. Thank you for listening.